0: So hello, everybody. I would like to welcome back a guest that we have had on the show before, Danielle Dulski. And if you would like to hear our very first interview with her, it's episode 184. It's called The Holy Wild. And we actually talked a lot about that book that she wrote. She's also the author of Women Most Wild. And she has a new book out called Seasons of the Moon and Flame, The Wild Dreamer's Epic Journey of Becoming. So let me just tell you a little bit about her first in case you haven't listened to episode 184, Danielle is a heathen visionary, pagan poet, and world witch. She's the author of Seasons of Moon and Flame, The Holy Wild, and Women Most Wild. She teaches internationally and has facilitated circles, communal spell work, and seasonal rituals since 2007. She's the founder of the Hag School and believes in the emerging power of wild collectives, cunning witches, and rebellious artists in healing our ailing world. So, Danielle, welcome back to the Path 11 podcast. Thank you so much, April. Very happy to be here. Yes, I, I love your writing. I really enjoyed um, The Holy Wild, which was why when I heard you had another book, I said, bring her back on. And mm-hmm. I am still somewhat new to the moon phases. So I really enjoyed this book because it was just, it, it kind of gives uh, somebody a really nice I guess handbook or or just way to be able to track the moon phases throughout the seasons, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that. How you really break this book up into four different parts, Um, and we're able to kind of take a look at the moon in its phases for spring, summer, autumn, and winter. So it's very helpful for me because sometimes when I hear about the new moon or the full moon, I've learned uh, that the new moon is usually about manifesting. What is it that you want to bring in? Full moon is about. I'm not even sure if I'm correct in saying any of that. So I I sometimes just sit and thought, but I've never really had any other um, skills or to figure out like what kind of ritual or how can I deepen my practice around the moon cycle. So this book is like perfect for a beginner like me. So um, why don't you begin to just tell us a little bit about uh, this new book and how it came to be?
1: Yeah. So Seasons of Moon and Flame came to be from me kind of going back through my own history (laughs) and thinking about these visits that I used to take to my grandmother's house during my late teenage and early, during my early twenties years, where there was a real rhythm to the visits to her house. And that rhythm was nourishment. I, I would come in and she would feed Me. So nourishment was the first thing. And then there would be a challenge. She would kind of ask me a poignant question that was kind of uncomfortable, like, What are you doing with your life right now, anyway? (laughs) or something like that. And so that was sort of a a bite, uh, a challenge, a bite. And then finally, there would be like the integration. She would kind of tie it up in a little bow with a story or something like that. So I was thinking about how those visits to her house really mirror for me the three moons of any solar season. So this, the first moon of a season, like the first moon of spring, for example, there's some joy to it. It's, it's a moon of nourishment. There, it's, it's exciting when it's the first warm wind or something like that. Uh, but then the second moon of spring is the moon of challenge. It's like, oh, I'm here now. And now I have to figure out what I'm going to do. <laughs> and then the last moon of any season is a moon of integration. And it's sort of this the the weaving of the nourishment with the challenge, but then also preparing for whatever the next solar season is going to be. So that's how the book came into being was me thinking about how the three moons of any season, they really paralleled these visits to the sacred hag from my life, her house. Um, So that was the, the seed that was planted a few years ago. And then the book evolved from there. Yeah, I
0: loved reading about your visits to your grandmother's house because they were so similar to mine. There was just my grandmother's house was always just such a nice escape. And when you had said, you know, of course, you know, you'd walk in and she'd feed you right away. I was like, oh my gosh, yep, my grandmother <laughs> would always. Be, Are you hungry? Come into the kitchen. You know, it was like that was the first thing. Um, yeah. that would always happen when I would go for a visit. So I really love that. So you referred to her as uh, a hag. And for people that may not be familiar with this term, hag. And maybe you can also, because you also talk about the word crone, um, if you can describe what those words mean, what they're referring to.
1: Yeah, it's a good question. So for me, both hag and crone and and witch actually are archetypes um and there's been a slow reclaiming of the words witch and crone and since witches always live on the fringes and we're always trying to see like how far we can push the boundary so so for me hag is kind of like the next tier like how do we reclaim the word hag uh the holy hag and so for me the hag archetype is very much about that um Kind of solitary feminine force that lives on the edges of what is socially acceptable. And so the hag is a storyteller. The hag is a medicine woman. uh, The hag is a spell crafter. So the hag is all of these different things. Um, But I I use the word hag on purpose instead of, you know, witch or crone or wild woman, because I, you know, I'm always trying to figure out how much I can get away with. And i figure that hag is is one of those words that hasn't been fully uh, fully reclaimed yet even e- even in me I can sometimes if you know if somebody were to call me a hag and you know of course people do a lot now because <laughs> I'm the founder of the hag school and I, I talk about hags all the time uh but even me I feel a little bit of a resistance or something in my body. And so, um, so that I find interesting that I I don't find repulsive. It's some kind of approaching that resistance with a little bit of curiosity. So the hag is the, you know, the wise feminine force in all of us. Great. Thank you. I have a little bit of a funny story with the word crone.
0: I was at a woman's wellness (laughs) retreat. I think it was, it was last year and it was more of the, um, West Africa shamanic type of tradition, and we were honoring Mm -hmm. the element of mineral for 2019. And I remember my teacher saying, oh, well, we have a drummer coming in uh, that's going to drum for our, 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 you know, large ritual. And I said, okay, that's great. So, you know, that day had come and we were just preparing and gathering a bunch of stones because for that ritual, you basically bury yourself in stones from the earth and allow the mineral to be Mm -hmm. able to speak to you, um, help you to remember who you are, what are the stories that you carry within your body. And so as I was outside with some of the women, we were collecting rocks. Somebody said to me, did you see the crone? And I had never heard this (laughs) word before. And I was like... No, I, I don't. I don't know what you're talking about. I thought it was like a bird or something. I was like, "Where? What's a crone? Where, where did you see it?" Because <laughs> I thought we were out in the woods, and she was like, "No, the drummer." And I said, "Oh no, I haven't. I haven't seen the drummer." And she's like, "Yeah, she really looks like a crone." And I said, "Okay, you know, I didn't really." just understand what that meant and then when i walked into the room as we were building it for ritual there was this woman with this beautiful long golden kind of silverish hair that was like all the way down to like the back of her neck um her facial features she was much older or Mm -hmm. appeared to be older and there was actually like this this really large mole right near her lip. And I was like, Oh my God, she looks like a true witch, you know? And then I was, then I kind of like put two and two together, but it was really kind of in, in some ways looking at this, this woman who looked so beautiful, but really had some uh, remarkable physical features that when you first glanced at her, I mean, all that you could think of was a little bit of like this witchy energy. So that was yeah. my first introduction to the word last year. Had been no idea. You know, I'm thinking I'm looking for a bird and actually they were, you know, (laughs) describing this woman. So, yeah. So I just figured just because, like I said, I'm kind of new to this too. I just didn't want to assume that people are familiar with this terminology because I wasn't about a year ago. (laughs)
1: Mm hmm. Yeah, I love it. For first introduction to crown. How cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so
0: um, yeah, so why don't we go into the houses? So you have uh, the way that the book is separated, like I said, into these four pouches. You have House of the Garden Hag, which is the opening of the spring's portal, and we are recording this in the spring now. Um, And then you have the House of Desert Hag, which is the opening of the summer's portal. Uh, the house of the sea hag, which is autumn, and house of the mountain hag, which is winter, and was thinking that it might be nice for us to start with spring, since this is where we are as we're recording this, and maybe you can describe for people how you actually break up Uh, these houses, because you kind of go through different rituals for uh, when the moon is in a different phase through new moon, full moon, I believe waxing and waning. So maybe you can help us to understand the different moon phases first, and then we can go into the beginning of spring, which is all about, you know, the heart, which I thought is really interesting
1: at this uh, time that we're recording this right now. Right? Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, when you were talking about the, the moon phases and, you know, whether it's correct or not, I think it always depends on who you ask. <laughs> there is there is a wide range of perspectives among the witchcraft community about what the right moon phase is to work what particular magic. So there's, there's a lot of... Um, freedom and malleability in how you work with the moon but the the book is organized according to my relationship to both the lunar seasons and the solar seasons so for me, the 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 most simplistic way of explaining the moon phases would be would be this. Uh, on the new moon, it is it, it's an initiation. Every new moon is an initiation. So on the new moon, we do well to ask ourselves what new thing is being born in me right now. And then, as the moon waxes, we start to move toward fruition or the kind of peak swell of what that thing is. So the waxing phase is a phase of manifestation. And then when we get to the full moon, it is this really intense time. And I I don't know, I haven't figured it out yet. I'm actually not a a big astrology person. um, And that's not against anybody that is. It's just, I have never been able to fully grasp astrology. (laughs) So I don't know exactly what it is about the different moons, but some of the full moons are incredibly intense. And so I know this one that just passed right now, like I wasn't sleeping at all. And all of the women that I was working with in our online community, none of them were sleeping either. So I'm not sure what that thing is but the full moon is always an intense moon and it is intense because our magic work is at like peak fruition so the full moon's a great time for protection magic um any like really high fire manifestation magic full moon would be um a good phase to, to work under. And then the waning moon is for the banishing, the release, the letting go. And finally, when you get to the dark moon, which is usually the day, well, always is the day before the new moon. The dark moon is in my practice. It's a time of really not doing much. It's a time of void. Um, if we work any magic at all, it's the magic of divination and Oracle work and just kind of preparing for what that next initiation is going to be. So that's a simplistic view of what the lunar cycle is all the time. But then certain parts of that cycle become more pronounced depending on what solar season you're in. So you can kind of look at the entire wheel of the year as as a really long lunar cycle, where winter is kind of the dark moon of the year. It's a time for reflection and divination and oracle work. And spring is a season of initiation and manifestation. Summer is a season of peak fruition, so sort of the full moon of the year, the summer season. And then autumn is the waning moon, the letting go. So if you're working under a waning moon in autumn, for example, then that banishing force is a little bit more pronounced. It's more potent. It's stronger in the same way that the waxing phase of a spring moon would be right now. It's very, very intense. Uh, Full moon in summer, very intense. And then dark moon in winter, um, very intense time for uh, oracle work and divination. So So that's the way I work with the relationship between the lunar and solar seasons. And then in the book, the four houses of the hags, those are akin to the solar seasons. So what happens in the book is the reader kind of journeys around to visit these four houses of the sacred hags as they're moving around the wheel of the year. And the hag shares a story with them. And then all of the rituals and spell work and the poetry and the writing prompts, everything that's in there is kind of born from that initial story that the hag tells for that particular moon. So that's the way the book is organized. And in spring, we meet the garden hag, who is kind of lusty and poetic, and the stories that she tells are a little bit more lighthearted. She's concerned with ancestral healing. And then the desert hag in summer, she's a storyteller. Um, She's very concerned with um, activism, the relationship between activism and magic, And the sea hag in Autumn is uh, very mysterious and kind of spectral. She tells ghost stories. She speaks of grief a lot, good grief, and the importance of acknowledging what is being released from your life. And then, lastly, the mountain hag in winter is kind of the the most bitter of them all. And she also is a storyteller, but she's talking about like um, you know how, how to reflect on the past year and also prepare for the next. So that is the uh, a, a synopsis of the entire book and the relationship between the lunar and solar seasons. Great. Thank you. It's very, very detailed. You know, I mean, there's like, there's a
0: lot to it to kind of digest. And, but I think you really explained that in a very easy way for me to finally follow and, and understand. Mm -hmm. Um, so when, when, uh, we get to, you know, the spring, Um, Mm -hmm. There are some rituals in there with eggs. And I thought, oh, well, that's interesting because, you know, Easter's in the spring and, um, you know, everyone's decorating eggs and stuff like that. But I wanted to go a little bit deeper and talk to you a little bit more about what is the significance of uh, the
1: egg being used in some of these spring rituals. (laughs) Yeah, that's a great question. Um, The first thing that I always like to say about spring, although I've been noticing that it seems less important this year because of these strange times that we're living in. um, But spring is a balance point of light and dark, just like autumn is. So at the vernal equinox in spring, we have just as much darkness as we do light. So, So in the same way that we do at the autumnal equinox, and yet in autumn, we have all of this support for the darkness because we have, you know, the skulls in all the stores and and Halloween is relatively socially acceptable. So we have all of this social support for the darkness in autumn. And yet in spring, we don't really, you know, the, the stores have the candy and the bunnies and all of that. And there's all of this support for the light. And for in my experience and with a lot of other women that I work with, spring is really gnarly. Spring is hard. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. it's always like, but I'm supposed to be happy right now. I'm supposed to be, you know, acknowledging the birth and the light and the love. And that's not always the way it is. Um, and the perfect metaphor for that is birth. I mean, birth is, uh, is, is violent even sometimes. So If we look at the creation myths of our ancestry, a lot of which include the cosmic egg, there's a lot of different cultures that include the cosmic egg and their creation myths, we can see that that birth is hard. And so we look at creation myths as metaphors for our manifestation magic, whether it's spring or any other time of year, because when we do that, then we are already embracing what might be a little bit of shadow, a little bit of challenge with respect to our manifestation manifestation work. So that's the, the cosmic egg in one way. The, the other reason is that the, the egg hunt is a very pagan, uh, pagan tradition. It's like you, you hide the egg as a metaphor for something being buried. And then you recover the egg as a metaphor for something being, you know, reborn or integrated into your life. So, um, so when we're working with these cosmic eggs of birth and renewal which is what i call them in the book it's acknowledging that there is this this balance of light and dark you know think about the hatchling inside the egg—it's really dark in there. <laughs> and there's like not a lot of not a lot of light, not a lot of certainty about what's going to happen. And then that egg starts to crack. So, um, so yeah. So in a way, the egg is about acknowledging the the darkness that comes with birth. Yeah. Great. Thanks for um, explaining that.
0: It made me think when I was reading it. Uh, similar to another ritual that one of my teachers had uh, taught me with a fertilized egg. It had to be a fertilized egg from like a farm, you know, a local farm. And Mm. uh, what she would do is you would actually take the egg as the facilitator. And it could be used for women that were struggling maybe with uh, fertility issues or maybe there was some sort of trauma related or, you know, the sacral chakra you know, just needed to be clear. But what was interesting is she would take the egg and kind of roll it around in the sacral chakra area. Um, and the egg would actually begin to fill with energy. And before mm. lifting the egg from the woman's body, the practitioner um, actually takes, puts her mouth on the tip of the egg before removing it from the body breathes in as in like sucking in whatever energy was up through the egg, transferring the egg and spitting into the earth. And then taking mm-hmm. that egg and burying it, and mm. I I don't remember why she did this. I mean, this was like so many years <laughs> ago in my twenties, and but I remember like whoa, that was really weird. And then when she ran a class on it and taught me how to do that, I actually was able to um, perform that, um, you know, on a couple of women that were having similar issues or whatever the case may be, and it was really wild because the egg you could feel it, um, really felt different when it was collecting the energy, and then it was. Up to the woman to actually take her egg and give it back to the earth um, and bury it, you know, herself for this this type of ceremony. So when I was reading about the eggs, I was like, "Oh,
1: that's interesting." There's like another egg ritual. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. I've seen something similar done. I think as an offering to Oshun. Um, And it was, it was similar. Um, there was only one egg for a whole group of women, but it it was the same thing. We all kind of gifted our energy and then it was cracked and buried. Mm. Um, so yeah, so there's something to eggs that's very universal, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, you know, to be honest, I never even really considered that much, you know, until I was reading your book. Um, So another question that I had, too, it's a little bit off topic, but not really. Uh, Mm -hmm. Is it important for people maybe to look up, you know, the day that they were born, where the moon was uh, within the cycle? And does that have any significance or meaning? Like when you talked about astrology, right? The day that we're born, Mm -hmm. we're kind of put into this category, um, you know, of... Of connecting to this sign, right? If you're born on such and such days between right. this time, so I was just curious to know: uh, Does our birth moon? I just made that that term up, um, <laughs> but you know, the the day that we are born, taking a look at what phase the moon was in—any significance to that at all?
1: In my practice, no. But that doesn't mean that it wouldn't—that it isn't important. Um, it hasn't been something that I've worked with, but I think that you know, every, everything is, everything's data, right? Like (laughs) everything is relevant. So, so yeah. So if it's, it's something that, you know, maybe are you, uh, you know, stronger in your magic under the moon phase in which you were born? I don't, I don't know, but I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't throw it out for sure. Right. Yeah.
0: I just wanted to, wanted to ask that question. Um, and then I really liked in your book, you had said, uh, you know, if you weren't quite sure which season to go to kind of drop within yourself and really choose the season that you connect with the most. And Mm -hmm. um, I automatically thought of the fall uh, just living in New York. I think that's one of the reasons why I've never been able to move out of New York because I just Mm -hmm. think it is one of the most beautiful seasons with all the changing of the colors and the leaves. And even though it is a bit of, You know, things kind of coming to an end, and like you had put in your um, book, it's kind of like about grieving, dying, and then becoming. I just find Mm -hmm. it to be such a peaceful time of year. So when I first read that, of course, I jumped immediately to autumn. Then I said, well, let me see what autumn says first, because that's the the season that I really connect to the most. I hate being hot and I hate being cold. So <laughs> spring and autumn are like my, my seasons, definitely. I really enjoy the spring. It's just so beautiful to see things coming to life. And I just love the transformation of the fall. So uh, mm-hmm. would you mind maybe giving us just a little bit of an overview with the fall and uh, just kind of what that all entails?
1: yeah uh of the of the autumn um well both autumn and spring are seasons of of intense change right so you know in winter, we we kind of sit in this void. And in summer, we kind of sit at peak fruition. So like I said before, dark moon and full moon of the year, respectively. But spring is a waxing time and autumn is a waning time. So people that like change (laughs) people that feel comfortable when they're either calling things in or they're actively releasing things they tend to feel a real kinship with those two seasons because those are very changeable Mm -hmm. seasons um and i also like to look at the ayurvedic perspective on the seasons um especially if you live in a place where you do experience all four seasons like uh, like you and I do. Um, if you if you love autumn, then you, pro- which I do too, I love autumn and I love winter. And if you're saying you hate being hot, then maybe you would be of the Pitta Dosha. So you have like a lot of fire in I you. Am. And uh, you are 100% yeah. right. <laughs> right, so me too. So you have a lot of fire in you. And so yes, being hot, is kind of like the worst thing. And the reason that is, is because in summer, there's so much fire out in nature and there's so much fire in us that it feels kind of oppressive. So, somebody that would be of the Vada dosha, they would have a lot of air and ether in them. And so, autumn would not be their favorite season. It would feel, it would almost, they kind of feel like they're like floating off into space all the time. It's this time of the great drying out, and they tend to be a little bit drier anyway, in terms of Ayurveda, a little bit dry um versus the kafa people so people that are more earth and water then especially late winter and early spring are the times of struggle for them so a lot of people that have seasonal depression there there's this added uh Added pressure of being of a Kapha dosha, where there's just so much earth and water in you, and then there's so much earth and water out in nature, and it's like that cold, damp time where, like, you know, the snowflakes get really fat or something like that, and it's like this really heavy time, and so Kapha people tend to resist that. So the season that you feel at home in, it might be relative to the elements. You know, if you look at Ayurveda, and you can take any number of tests online, and most of them are. Actually, relatively accurate, <laughs> most of them, not all of them, um, because you kind of look at like when you feel, when and where you feel most at home, what foods you like to eat, um, aesthetically, like the structure of your bones and your body, um, so you can figure out which dosha you are, and then that might point you to which seasons are yours. And it is just a moment of like, oh yeah, that that's just a validation of why I've always loved that season or hated that season.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I had, you know, it's funny that you say that and break it down that way too. Um, you know, I was familiar just with my acupuncturist letting me know what my dosha was and how that did make sense that I am not a big fan of summer, you know, because yeah. of the heat. But I also had a client and she was the first person that I have ever heard this where she actually gets seasonal depression in the summer. She like loves the winter time, yeah. you know, but the summertime she just retreats. She's like, I feel like I am completely opposite of what a lot of people experience in the Northeast. She's like her depression sets in in the summer. So that's really interesting. I might even go back and tell, her to just, um, you know, maybe learn a little bit more about this. And one of Mm the uh, newsletters that I follow that I have found to be a pretty good, um, Ayurvedic, well, I mean, Deepak Chopra's, um, website and stuff like that they do a lot of ayurvedic stuff but i subscribe Mm -hmm. to joyful belly it's called uh, Mm. joyful belly school so if people want to just google that uh i think that's where i took my very first uh dosha quiz and they just have Mm -hmm. a lot of great information there um Mm. but yeah so so autumn yeah kind of grieving dying becoming things kind Mm of kind of ending um there
1: and then retreating into the winter for rest too so right it's like the the more you can let go of in autumn, I think we're always letting go of something in autumn. So the more you can let go of in autumn, then maybe the better you'll be able to tend to the void of winter. The void is very uncomfortable. Um, because if we look at the, what, what's going on in our society in November and December, which is kind of the peak of the void around Yule, all of society is telling us to like buy all the things and drink all of the alcohol and eat all the food and spend all the money. And it's this time of like accumulation, and so it's like fill the void with everything you possibly can, <laughs> and and that and if we just look to nature, we can see that that isn't what we're supposed to be doing. We can see that like nature knows it's a time of going inward and being still. Um, so I think that it, you know in autumn, the more we can acknowledge what we are releasing, what what we are uh, consciously releasing from our lives and th- the better we'll be able to tend to that that time of, uh, spaciousness in winter. Um, yeah.
0: Great. Well, can you let people know what you have going on just like with your courses and stuff? I know that people can actually study with you. You hold events. Some events are being put on hold right now, but um, are you doing a lot of your stuff online? And if people want to learn more about you, let's bring them over to your website too.
1: Yes um I'm very active online I'm I mostly teach online anyway but especially right now I'm <laughs> only teaching online and uh so I have two websites danieldolsky.com and thehagschool.com and I have witchcraft apprenticeships I have facilitator trainings ritual facilitator trainings and I have um, an uh, two online coven's. one of them is for storytelling and spellcraft and then the other is for movement and body prayers so both of those can be found on the hag school site
0: great and i think last time we talked you were doing some things with yoga um
1: are you still doing that I'm not doing teacher trainings anymore, okay. but the, the, uh, on the hag school, the hive of the holy wild flesh, that's our movement coven. So there is some yoga inspired movement and breath work and meditation and, uh, and, and body prayers, which are similar to Kriyas in yoga. Wonderful. Well, Danielle, it's
0: always a pleasure to talk to you. I just love your insight. You are always educating me on this stuff (laughs) and, you know, brings out a little bit of my witchy side. So I love it. I find comfort in in reading some of, um, you know, just the stuff that you put out. And have you ever thought about creating like a moon oracle deck? Is that in your future anytime soon? That may be in the future. Yes. That's a little bit of my own intuitive sense that I download I'm getting as I am interviewing you. I'm seeing it. So if you, if you haven't made one and you thought about it and people have asked, consider that a little confirmation. Thank you. (laughs) All right, Danielle. Well, thanks again. And please come back to our show um, when you have uh, some more stuff and uh, we'll get your information out there.
1: I absolutely will. Thanks so much, April.
0: Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. I also wanted to remind you that we are selling live stream tickets over at our website for $129 for the afterlife awareness conference. This conference is going to be held online only June 5th through the 7th, and you can get your access by visiting path AC 2020.